0: Cinderella wasn't the first Disney princess, but she's arguably the foremost. You can make a case that every subsequent Disney princess is either a refinement or an inversion of the Cinderella template. Her castle forms the silhouette in the Disney logo and is by far the most iconic fairy tale landmark in the theme parks, which as we've discussed on prior episodes, is where the real money gets made. Disney is really more of a hospitality company that happens to have a very expensive advertising division. That being said, Cinderella might be even more critical to the Disney oligarchy than it initially appears. Cut off from the international market due to World War II and beset by a number of other risky financial gambles that went sideways, Disney entered the 1950s in serious debt. The studio could very well have gone under had the $3 it invested in Cinderella yielded a flop. Cinderella's success saved the company and gave Walt Disney enough credit to invest in further movies, the emerging television market, and in Disneyland. The world would have been a very different place if audiences had decided to skip this one. So, Cinderella is an influential film by a number of metrics. We'll be getting into the how and why over the course of this recording. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello. And my brother Sylvan. Hiya. And uh, this was your pick.
1: Yeah, so earlier, uh, well, I guess this past year, I started watching the Disney animated movies in chronological order. I fizzled out before I got to the end, but um, it was really fun to watch them back-to-back like that and see uh, things developing. And I was really struck by Cinderella as... uh, like watching it in context of the other movies and where the animation was going. Um, And also just, I I hadn't seen it since I was a child, and uh, it hit me different as an adult. I found Cinderella a lot more relatable.
0: When did you get bored? Was it the 70s?
1: Actually, I I tapered off in in the 80s with the stuff that we grew up with, because that stuff was all familiar, so I wasn't really discovering things anymore.
0: Okay, that's fair. Uh, Cheryl, how long has it been since you've watched Cinderella?
1: Um, I haven't watched this movie since I
2: think I was... barely double digits?
0: Yeah, you weren't super excited about this one, and you did not like the digital restoration that was on Disney Plus.
2: That is putting it kindly, yeah.
0: <laughs> what about if that bothered you, and uh, how did it contrast against the grainy, shitty-ass 90s VHS copy that we are more familiar with from the library?
2: I guess it's just what I I associate with, as a child, I thought were the boring Disney movies were, well, at least they were pretty. They were like paintings walking around, which was really nice, and that's not what we watched at all.
1: You can still see the really beautifully done animation and the backgrounds. They're just brighter colors than we remember.
2: Yeah, and they smoothed out the lines so they don't look like pencil sketches. Like, I'm... My favorite, like, of the older Disney stuff, is like *The Sword in the Stone*. Which, oh, Charles, that that didn't happen yet.
1: That, yeah, that the the style reason the animation um is a little later that was the xeroxing.
0: Yeah, that was the xeroxing and the 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 pencil stuff was there because the xeroxing uh couldn't be erased properly. Don yeah. Bluth finally solved that problem.
2: Yeah, but this movie still had like rougher lines and it was pretty they were thinner and thicker in some areas. It wasn't this like flat modern look to a very classical style.
0: Yeah, digital restoration does have a flattening effect and there is kind of like a um, smoothed out gouache look in the, in a number of the scenes. Although I do think that a lot of the, uh, the ball sequences are still very beautiful, but I'm a big Mary Blair fan and Mary Blair's abstracted ways of dra- rendering flora and fauna are very evident in those sequences. Like it almost gets like cubist in bits. I thought it was very nice looking.
1: I I admit it's not as like you're saying about the flattening effect and um, the color palette is obnoxiously bright on the digital restorations, but I still think that you can tell it's a beautifully animated movie.
0: Oh yeah, the movements are still graceful and all that, but we can get there after the plot recap, in case you guys don't know how Cinderella goes. Um, <laughs> when Cinderella is a young girl, her widowed father marries Lady Tremaine, a widow with two daughters of her own, womp who, are, womp, who, are des- who are described as awkward by the very kind narrator, who sounds an awful lot like Cruella Deville. We'll get to that.
2: But also cool for her that she kept her name.
0: He dies shortly thereafter, as usual. Uh, Lady Tremaine, jealous of her stepdaughter's beauty and determined to forward her own daughter's interests, orders Cinderella to become a scullion in her own chateau, overburdening her with chores. Cinderella's stepsisters, Anastasia and Drizella, also take advantage of her meekness, mocking her and adding to her workload. Despite this, Cinderella remains kind of heart, obediently doing her chores while taking care of the mice and birds that live in the chateau as it falls into ruin because Lady Tremaine is wasting all of the family's resources on trying to prop up these two utter duds of stepsisters.
2: They both kind of look a little bit like Elmer Fudd. Yeah. Just tossing that out there.
0: Also, you can tell that the mice and the birds aren't vermin because they're wearing people clothes.
2: That Cinderella makes for them. Yes. They're pets.
0: The film opens with Cinderella rescuing a chubby little mouse from a trap. naming Gus, Gus. Naming him Gus Gus and giving him a little shirt that's too small for him, but it's cute. She also gets him gives him a hat, which is a bag of holding when he needs to gather up beads later on in the movie
2: but not corn.
0: Yeah. Cinderella also protects the um, birds and mice from the stepmother's cat, Lucifer, who uh, basically makes uh, Cinderella's duties more difficult in retaliation. Lucifer's the MVP of this movie. Best character design, best character reactions. Every laugh from the movie comes from Lucifer.
2: Those eyes, I really do enjoy his eyes so much.
0: We'll be getting more to Lucifer's animation later on. We next cut to the local king who is impatient for his son to settle down, get married, and provide him with grandchildren. There's also a little bit where the king is lamenting about how his uh, son has grown up and has grown distant from him and maybe he wants to relive some of the more beloved uh, childhood days that he had with the kid before you know, he gets too old for that sort of thing.
2: The royal painter is kind of a dick though because like he does show his son <laughs> in portrait after portrait moving further
1: away from him
0: that's some good visual storytelling right there
1: <laughs> i do think it's really interesting that the prince is such a minor character and that the the king is really given all of the emotional investment in this but i like it as a storytelling choice
0: uh, the prince had more to do in previous drafts of the script we will be getting to that Despite the objections of the Grand Duke, the king invites all the eligible maidens in the kingdom to a royal ball so that the prince will, you know, fall in love with one of them and choose her as a wife and broodmare. (laughs) Wanting to attend, Cinderella finds a dress of her late mother's uh, to fix up. Her stepmother and stepsisters, afraid that she will upstage them at the ball, deliberately keep her busy with no time to spare to, you know, renovate the dress. Jock, Gus, and the other animals decide to fix up the dress for Cinderella while she's busy, using beads and a sash discarded by her stepsisters, who declare them ugly. However, when Cinderella attempts to go to the ball with her family, her stepsisters recognize their belongings and angrily tear the dress into rags.
1: They're helped along. that recognition
0: yeah lady tremaine just sort of like hey those beads look familiar Uh, distraught cinderella runs out to the garden in tears kneeling on a stone bench there, she is met by her fairy godmother, who has come to help. She transforms Jock, Gus, and uh, two other mice into four white horses, a pumpkin into a coach, and Cinderella's old horse, Major, and bloodhound, Bruno, into a coachman and footman, respectively. Uh, the godmother also gives Cinderella a shimmering ball gown and glass slippers, but then warns her before she leaves that the magic will end on the stroke of midnight. Cinderella arrives at the ball and is not recognized by her stepsisters, though her stepmother believes something is familiar about out here uh, the prince is instantly smitten so the king orders the grand duke to make sure that romance goes on without a hitch and then immediately leaves he's like a bond villain but for sex uh, the duke prevents anyone from interfering particularly lady tremaine as cinderella and the prince dance a waltz and wander out to the palace grounds falling deeper into each other's eyes however when cinderella hears the clock tolling for midnight she runs away before she and the prince can exchange names Despite the efforts of the Grand Duke, Cinderella flees the palace, losing one of her slippers on the staircase. Uh, The palace guards pursue, and they look like the dire wraiths from Lord of the Rings. I'd run (laughs) away from them too. But when the magic ends on the stroke of twelve, Cinderella and the animals revert to their original appearances and hide in the woods. Cinderella discovers the other glass slipper is still on her foot, unchanged, and takes it home with her. The prince promises that he will marry none but the girl who fits the glass slipper, which is what saves the Grand Duke from being killed by the king. He threatened to murder the Grand Duke if anything goes awry. Elated by this, the king orders the Grand Duke to go from house to house and try the shoe on every single girl into the kingdom until he finds the right one. When the news reaches the chateau, Cinderella is shocked to realize that it was the prince that she met and danced with at the ball. Hearing Cinderella humming the waltz from the ball, Lady Tremaine finally realizes the truth and locks Cinderella in her attic bedroom to keep her from reuniting with the prince. While the stepsisters unsuccessfully try on the slipper, and thankfully do not hack their heels off in this version, Jack and Gus steal the key back from Lady Tremaine in the tensest scene in the movie. This is some Hitchcockian shit right here.
1: Without any help from those fucking birds...
0: As they take the key to Cinderella, Lucifer attempts to stop them by trapping Gus and battling the other mice. The birds then chime in here. <laughs> the birds summon Bruno, who scares Lucifer out of the house, and Lucifer plummets to his death. And I freeze. Afraid...
1: The cat totally lived somehow.
0: We don't hear a splat noise, I guess.
2: Well, no, no remember um, Jane when she can't fill off the second story
1: balcony? Lucifer was fine. He was fine.
0: And a freed Cinderella hurries to meet the Grand Duke. In a last effort to prevent Cinderella from overshadowing her daughters, Lady Tremaine causes a page to trip and break the glass slipper. Cinderella, however, is able to reveal that she has the other slipper, which the Grand Duke places on her foot, much to Lady Tremaine's shock and dismay.
1: Assumedly, Lady Tremaine and the daughters are taken to the hot coals with the shoes and all that.
0: That part is not depicted in this film. I
1: assume it happens. That look on Cinderella's blissed out face when she realizes she's going to marry the prince.
0: You know why? I, I, I did another episode on Ever After, and Drew Barrymore, Cinderella put up with a lot more shit than that, and she was willing to forgive, I bet this one is too.
2: I fucking love Ever After!
0: Cinderella and the prince are married, and they share a kiss as they set off in a carriage for their honeymoon, which I have been told has Mickey ears on it, but we can't fucking find them.
2: I mean, we watched the remastered one, maybe they removed them for some reason. Anyway. I doubt
1: it.
0: Anyways, end of <laughs> film. Of
2: adding more Mickey ears. I like... mean,
0: every Disney animated film has Mickey ears somewhere. Some people say that the uh, the floating bubbles with the Cinderella clones harmonizing with each other forms mouse ears in a the frame. Then you can sort of see it, but I don't know, that one's a bit of a reach too. The
2: Cinderella clones? Like the Boba Fett clones? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Anyways, the basic narrative beats of Cinderella date back to some of the earliest surviving examples of human writing. There's an ancient Greek myth where a commoner wins the heart of an Egyptian pharaoh and he tracks her down and identifies her via a misplaced sandal. Variations of the story pop up in ancient Roman and medieval literature, not to mention semi-related versions can be found in African and Asian folklore. Most modern takes on Cinderella evolved from the 1697 take authored by Charles Perrault. This is where the transforming pumpkin and fairy godmother come in. However, Perrault's most famous riff could have been the result of a typo. Earlier versions of the fairy tale have Cinderella wear fur slippers to the ball. They're transformed from squirrels, usually. Perrault's sources used the antiquated word "verre" to describe them. It's possible that Perrault interpreted that word as ver, the French word for glass.
2: Ooh, I mean, I think glass is more striking than rodent feet.
0: Yeah, I think that's why people kept up with it. <laughs> The earliest known Cinderella opera was staged in 1749, the earliest known stage play in 1804, and the earliest known ballet in 1893. Ballet being that thing with the bear driving a little car.
1: Of course, culture. (laughs) Uh,
0: The earliest known Cinderella film was directed by George Méliès in 1899. That's a name that just keeps coming up, doesn't it? Uh, A short animated film using silhouette puppets was produced in Germany in 1922. Uh, Walt Disney's first crack at Cinderella was in 1922 as well. It was an animated short uh, produced for his short-lived Laugh-O-Gram series. Sort of a spiritual cousin to his uh, Alice comedies. I have been thinking about doing a podcast episode on the Alice comedies because not only is it something that Disney has kind of swept to the side as a corporate entity <laughs> because they don't own it, but it's also one of the few examples of Walt as an artist rather than as a businessman bossing around other artists. But anyways, uh, Walter Lance, Bud Fisher, Van Buren, Tex Avery, and Max Fleischer also directed Cinderella adaptations as animated shorts throughout the 1920s and 30s.
1: Yeah, the one that I remember most clearly is the Betty Boop one.
0: That is the only Betty Boop short in color during the Fleischer era. Bert Gillett was assigned to direct a Cinderella short for the Silly Symphony series in 1933. Fuck off, Stinkle. <laughs>
2: He just wants some love.
0: <laughs> the story centered on helpful mice and birds as Cinderella's companions, and a few of the proposed visual gags made it into the 1950 movie. By 1938, the project was deemed too complex to be a short, and Disney put it into development as a feature-length film. Uh, Al Perkins wrote a 14-page treatment, with a second treatment coming two years later by Dana Coffey and Bianca Marjoli. By 1943, Dick Wehner and Joe Grant were assigned to Cinderella and given a proposed $1 million budget. In 1945, during the writing stages of Song of the South, Maurice Raphth got into a fight with his writing partner Dalton S. Raymond and was reassigned to Cinderella. Raphth revised the story to make Cinderella less passive than Snow White and more of an active participant in her own story. In this draft, Cinderella actively fights against her stepsisters physically.
2: Hmm. I would have loved to have seen that one.
0: (laughs) A 1946 polish by Ted Sears, Homer Brightman, and Harry Reeves introduced a B-story conflict between Cinderella's helpful mice and the wicked stepmother's
1: cat. Excellent choice.
0: Storyboarding began in 1947, with the animal characters taking up at least half of the running time at this point. Uh, after the modest success of 1947's Fun and Fancy Free, Disney's debt shrank from $4.2 million to $3 million. Walt Disney convinced his creditors that green lighting feature films would promote fiscal solvency, and largely because re-releases of Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio, and so on earned impressive sums in the secondary market. So he's like, if I make more animated features, they're cash cows, I can re-release them every five to ten years and it'll just keep rolling in. And that was Disney's strategy until home video.
1: And then we got the fucking vault.
0: Yeah, the fucking vault. Anyways, Walt Disney listened to pitches for Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Alice in Wonderland. Thinking that Peter Pan and Alice were a bit cold and that Cinderella evinced the very profitable Snow White, Disney signed off on Cinderella first. He did, however, greenlight Alice in Wonderland soon after, thinking that having the two productions simultaneously compete against each other in a sort of race would bring both in on time and under budget. Dinah Shore and Deanna Durbin were both considered for Cinderella, but the relatively unknown Eileen Woods caught Disney's ear through some recordings sent to the studio without her knowledge. At that point, she only had one film credit and was largely known as a big band singer who occasionally did radio. Uh, Eleanor Audley was a prominent character actress on screen and stage, and she was cast as Lady Tremaine for her distinct look and voice. Animators uh, Mark Davis and Frank Thomas modeled Tremaine after Audley's appearance.
1: That voice is incredible. I mean, she's maleficent as well and fucking kills it in both roles.
0: Uh, yes. Just because, like, she isn't a cackling, snidely whiplash figure, like, I I, I suppose subtle isn't the right word, but her reactions are always just, like, a little bit. Verna Felton was already a Disney vet when she voiced the fairy godmother. She was Mrs. Jumbo in uh, in Dumbo, and would later voice the Queen of Hearts, the Red Fairy, and Winifred the Elephant. Winifred was her last performance. I didn't see anything about her being visually modeled after the fairy godmother, but she looks like her. Well, I'm sure that's not a coincidence.
2: But I'm betting she looks friendly. I like Mm -hmm. the fairy godmother.
0: Yeah, she doesn't get much in the movie. She just shows up, transforms Cinderella, and then leaves.
1: And it's such an iconic, memorable moment.
0: Disney did say that uh, Cinderella's transformation into the dress was his favorite character animation, like, in all of his productions. Which, you know, if you're going to pick one, that's not a bad one to go with. Yep. All right, uh, Jimmy McDonald voiced Jock, Gus, and Bruno. Uh, he is another veteran of Disney sound department. He took over for Mickey Mouse for when Walt finally didn't have time to do it anymore. So he's mostly well-known for that, but... I mean, he's a big part of Gus Gus.
1: I'm, I'm very, uh, very fond of the mice and have been my whole life, so.
0: I mean, Gus Gus is such a trooper. He, he's been on the crew for like less than a day and he's already ride or die. He'll go out and fuck with the cat. He'll grab the beads. Um, you know what? He hesitates when he's dragging the key up the stairs, but he, he goes through with it.
2: I mean, yeah, after climbing all of those stairs to see another flight, like, I get it. Where he's like, oh, I guess we all just die now.
0: (laughs) And his little sped up, oh, as he faints.
1: Can you imagine when Cinderella, like, shows up at the palace with just, like, all of her mice in their little clothes? Like, we know the king is going to force everybody to humor whatever because he, he needs his grandbabies, but just the reactions, that must have been fun.
2: Like, oh, wow, my new daughter-in-law has a, has a dirt
1: rodent army. Great. <laughs> They've all got little hats. This is normal <laughs> and good. <laughs>
0: Uh, Rhoda Williams and Lucille Bliss were the voices of Drizella and Anastasia. um, You particularly like the bits where they're doing the vocal coach lessons because you're just like, that is a person who knows how to sing who is singing badly on purpose.
1: Yeah, you can hear it. There's a lot of power and control and effort to keep the notes wrong. (laughs) I also like the way they animate it so that she flaps when she's doing the, sing sweet nightingale. (laughs)
0: I forgot how many big butt jokes there are at the stepsister's expense in this movie.
1: Oh, no, buttraces. there were... Not buttresses. Yeah. Buttles? It's, it's a it's a t- style of dress. They're just being unfashionable. Mm-hmm. I think it's
2: buttle on a... Foot. Bustle. Bustle. And then it's a buttress on, like, a wall.
1: Yes. Okay, there
2: we go. I got there. <laughs> also, when I'm playing Mario Kart, I absolutely move my body to steer, so, like, I get it. <laughs>
0: Uh, Betty Lou Gerson was the narrator. She is best known for voicing Cruella DeVille. Vil. Watch Cinderella again in the intro. She's like, oh yeah, there she is.
1: That's what it's like when she's sounding nice.
0: <laughs> and then I went through this and was like, it's interesting to see a, um old-timey uh, movie list that doesn't have June 4. 4- oh, there she is. She's Lucifer. <laughs> She was asked about it once, and it was like, uh, somebody asked me if I could do a cat, and it was like, I've never done a cat before, but like, yeah, I can do anything. It's a nice job. She makes cat noises.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, her, her meowing is very good. Well, more like the, the like, upset. <laughs> <laughs>
0: To save time and money, Cinderella was heavily rotoscoped. Animators worked extensively off of live footage and were discouraged from drawing things from challenging angles that would be difficult to transition from. This is why Cinderella is a more boring-looking movie than, like, say, Pinocchio. There are less dramatic overhead and underhead shots. If they couldn't fit the, a camera onto the uh, live-action rotoscope stage, they were not allowed to draw it that way. Uh, oddly modeled herself. Walt told animators to draw her like an evil Joan Crawford.
2: I love it! That's like the best compliment ever and also explains her bed 100%. You got me. I'm back in it.
0: (laughs) Helene Stanley modeled both Cinderella and the stepsisters. Uh, She would later model Princess Aurora and Anita Radcliffe in case um, their movements seem familiar to you.
1: Yeah, I know that tracks.
0: Claire Dubray modeled the fairy godmother. If you look up photos of her, she does not look like the fairy godmother. Walt Disney initially saw the fairy godmother as this tall and regal-looking figure, similar to the blue fairy from Pinocchio. Disney animator Ken O'Connor convinced Walt to go with a more matronly aesthetic. O- O'Connor apparently modeled the fairy godmother after his wife.
2: Aww. I mean, yes, but also, like, I mean, that's his wife, and he
1: called his wife matronly. <laughs>
0: Maybe he's into that. Got a mommy kick.
1: Or maybe he was also old.
0: No, nah, he was in his 30s. Oh, then I got
1: nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Cinderella is the first Disney movie to feature Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnston, Les Clark, Wolfgang Reitherman, Eric Larson, Ward Kimball, Milt Kahl, John Loonsberry, and Mark Davis as supervising animators. Despite being in their thirties, as I just said, they were jokingly referred to as the Nine Old Men after uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's denigration of the Supreme Court before he packed it. So yeah, this is the movie where Voltron finally forms. Woo! Compared to prior features, Cinderella featured relatively less micromanaging from Walt. He was a little too busy playing with his model trains. And if he was harassing a film crew, it was usually the Treasure Island people. Now, Disney still insisted on approving certain story points. The nine old men would often send him proposals, hear nothing back, start working, then hear a very belated reply from Walt, and then have to scrap weeks of work in order to start over. Yeesh. Some of them said this was worse than just having him looking over their shoulders for every goddamn thing.
1: So, like, Cinderella's exasperated attitude that shows up (laughs) several times in this movie. Inspiration? Possibly. That is somebody who (laughs) smilingly puts up with a shitty boss that she hates.
0: None of them would confirm that on the record. The mouse-produced Cinderella dress was a riff on a Salvador Dali design one of the nine old men came across. Uh, the magical dress was more of a uh, Christian Dior design. They decided that they wanted her to look a little more modern when she goes to the ball.
1: See, I've never really liked Cinderella's dress, except for when I'm actually watching the movie. Uh, we talked about the color issues, and that nowadays they they tend to render it blue. But also, like when it's moving, it's just very mesmerizing. It has to be moving. <laughs> Otherwise, I think it's rather plain.
2: That's me and my opinion of Orlando Bloom.
0: Yeah, if you watch the movie, Cinderella's ball gown dress is a silvery white, but with the Disney Princess line, they were afraid that it would look too much like a wedding dress, so in most of those iterations, particularly on merchandise, Cinderella's dress tends to be tinted blue. And that's also how she appears in like her cameos in like Ralph Breaks the Internet or um House of Mouse.
1: But being silvery, sparkly, and gauzy is so much more interesting. Also, I didn't really understand the headband and no ears thing, but roboscoping explains that plenty.
0: Yeah, there were also other cost-cutting measures in addition to the rotoscoping. For example, when Cinderella's coach is going off, it tends to float on the air, so they won't need, like, detailed wheel-turning animation. Like, lots of little things like that. Unlike the humans who are rotoscoped to death, the animals did not require live-action footage for reference. Uh, At
1: this point, Disney animators know how to make anthropomorphized cute little animals.
0: And the designs all came across very well, but the design for Lucifer was a struggle. Uh, Ward Kimball was assigned to uh, that particular character, and he went through dozens of sketches that Walt rejected. During a meeting and bull session at Kimball's house, Walt was annoyed by Kimball's cat Feetzie just rubbing up against him. Walt wasn't a cat guy, and eventually he got frustrated and ultimately exclaimed, There's your Lucifer right here. So Lucifer is Ward Kimball's cat.
2: That's amazing.
0: Walt also interfered with the story direction. Uh, He acts a scene from the very beginning where we meet uh, Prince Charming. He shows up like in one of the first few scenes where he appears to be hunting a deer but then it's revealed that he and the deer are friends and they're like playing tag. So it turns out that Prince Charming is friends with the animals too.
1: Oh they
2: have something in common! They're druids but like D&D druids.
0: That scene was later added to the 2015 live-action remake. Walt also nixed a bit where Cinderella eavesdrops on her stepsisters enviously discussing the mystery girl at the ball, and she's kind of, like, snickering to herself. Walt felt that that made Cinderella more of a bitch and that she'd lose the audience's sympathy.
1: No, 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 no. That would have endeared her to me even more. (laughs) I liked how human she was and the, the little glances of, like, frustration and... Like, knowing she deserves better.
0: Uh, Walt Disney also vetoed a bit where Prince Charming learns that Cinderella is a commoner but accepts her as an equal regardless.
2: Why? You didn't want the animators to rise up. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This was sometime after the uh the unionization, but um uh, Walt's official explanation is that he felt that that was um a little bit too much and anticlimactic, and we might as well just get to the happy ending and skip over that bit.:
1: Yeah, God forbid we fucking humanize the prince a little and give him something to do
0: <laughs> so anyways, that's rather than
1: like upsetting his dad all the time. That's all we know about him.
0: I like the little bits where he's yawning at the princesses when he's being introduced to them.
1: He's so fucking sny. You didn't
2: get any lines. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Eye rolls. The eye rolls.
0: So yeah, the prince loses everything except the eye rolls. Cinderella marks the first time that Disney hired outside songwriters. A number of songs were written in-house for Cinderella, but Walt didn't like any of them. Specifically, Disney hired Tin Pan Alley composers Mac David, Jerry Livingston, and Al Hoffman to um, compose uh, original songs for the film. He liked a novelty tune they did called uh, "Chibaba, Chibaba," and he was like, "Do that again." And that—that's—that's that's where "Bippity Boppity Boo" came from.
2: You know, I used to not have opinions about "Bippity Boppity Boo," and now I have strong opinions about "Bippity Boppity Boo."
0: Because of Kingdom Hearts.
2: Because of Kingdom Hearts. Yeah. <laughs>
0: So there's a a level in Kingdom Hearts where like Bippity Boppity Boo plays on an endless loop and you're in that kingdom for at least 40 minutes.
2: Yep, yep, 100% <laughs> that. Like you're like, oh wow, this is such an iconic song. Only for this one little bit of the music you can identify it. And then 40 minutes later you're just like, this is what torture is. This is torture.
1: <laughs> I have never played Kingdom Hearts, so it's a cute song and I enjoy it. And it's easily recognizable. Yep. Yep.
0: Yeah, their other songs included Cinderella, A Dream Is A Wish Your Heart Makes, Oh Sing Sweet Nightingale, The Work Song, So This Is Love, and, you know, you get the idea. Uh, the original score for the film was composed by Oliver Wallace and Paul Smith. They got to compose, unlike their prior efforts, off of completed animatics and uh, pencil drawings before they went to ink and paint. So they were able to, like, work around the actual animation, which I do think has an effect on how the music comes across.
1: Yep, good plan.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lots of bits where like the cat rams his face into the wall and you don't hear a sound effect, you just, you know, hear a little like twinkly reed thing, so it's it's less severe even though Lucifer has a malformed face like Daffy Duck's rearranged duck bill after getting a shotgun blast. These guys are Disney vets. They had done dozens of shorts, and they also scored Dumbo, Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free, Seal Island, and The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. They would later do Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan, and they do uh, bits of Lady and the Tramp, but then they got stolen away for live-action movies at different studios. Cinderella is occasionally argued as the first example of multi-tracked harmony singing. That form of overdubbing had existed for a few months by the time 1949 had rolled around. Some people cite earlier examples that could have been, but yeah, the Sing Sweet Nightingale bit, just the way that um, all those multi-tracked vocals come together with those uh, mirrored soap bubbles, it's a nice sequence. It's kind of like the elephant dance from Dumbo, but a little less intense.
1: It's also pretty quick, so that helps. But yeah, no, I always liked that part as a kid. It's very pretty and trippy.
0: I mean, my favorite bit of animation from this film is the part where the the king is asleep and he's, he's playing with his grandchildren in his dreams and one of them bonks him on his head and that's the door opening for the Grand Duke to give him the bad news.
1: That part is really fucking cute.
0: Uh, Cinderella is the first Disney film to get a commercially released soundtrack album. Disney had founded a music publishing division just that year. Uh, It is also one of the earliest movies to get this kind of treatment, period. In the old days before this, film scores were considered disposable, and the music rights were often sold off to sheet music factories or recycled into cheaper films after the fact. Uh, After the popularization of original cast recordings for stage musicals, film studios began thinking that there might be an untapped market to exploit.
1: Go figure. Uh,
0: Another thing I learned about the music is that in her later years, uh, Eileen Woods suffered from dementia and Alzheimer's. Uh, She didn't remember voicing Cinderella in her last few years, but still derived comfort from hearing A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. That's very touching. So I just felt like destroying you with that little factoid.
1: Yeah, thanks.
0: You're welcome. Cinderella premiered in Boston on February 15th of 1950. It got re-releases in 1957, 1965, 1973, 1981, 1987, and 2013. It got the best reviews of any Disney film since Dumbo. It was their first commercially successful film since Song of the South, and their biggest success since Snow White. It was the fifth highest grossing film of 1950. And as I said, the reviews were mostly positive, although uh, some critics felt that the human characters were a little stiff and awkward and uncanny valley and over-rendered, and that the animal scenes blew them away. Childhood Us would agree. We, this, yep. is, this is the Mouse and Cat movie that happened to have Cinderella in it when we were like 6
1: Absolutely. fucking lootly. I mean, Jack and Gus Gus. Those were my guys. <laughs> I, I thought Cinderella was really boring and passive as a kid. As an adult, though, like, I just needed to work some some customer service jobs. I get her now.
0: <laughs> Cinderella got three Oscar nominations for Best Original Score, Best Original Song for Bippity Boppity Boo, and Best Sound Recording. It lost to Mona Lisa for Song, Annie Get Your Gun for uh, Original Score, and All About Eve for um, Sound Recording. Cinderella resulted in two direct-to-video sequels, Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True in 2002, and Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time in 2007.
2: We were talking about that one!
0: Yeah, and that one apparently Lady Tremaine, like, gets the powers of the Fairy Godmother's magic wand and creates some kind of, like, dystopian alternate timeline Back to the Future Part 2 style. Which sounds like an interesting premise, but... I do not
1: trust direct-to-DVD Disney sequels. It
2: sounds like every fanfic I wrote when I was 12. Like, every single one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the thing about the
0: 90s to early 2000s directed video Disney sequels is that those things made money, every single one. Disney stopped making them in the early 2000s because they felt that it was hurting their brand identity because everyone hates those.
2: It's like the um, animated, like, TV shows that weren't, like, Goof Troop or, like, Quack Pack when we were younger. We were just like, wait, the Aladdin one? That one was weird. Oh my god, the Hercules one? Did you see that one?
0: I barely remember that one.
2: That's because they were garbage, Ryan. They were garbage.
0: I mean, according to some people who have profiled the 90s Disney DVD sequels, I don't know why, but they felt the need to, the Cinderella ones are considered the better ones. Although everyone thinks Mulan 2 is the worst one.
2: Hand I mean, that's the reason why I didn't watch any of the Cinderella ones. I was like, oh, I'll give this a chance, and I was like, whoop. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, There was also a live-action remake directed by Kenneth Branagh in 2015. This is another territory where Disney keeps making these and they keep making money even though everyone seems to hate them. At some point Disney's gonna be like, this is hurting our brand identity and we're gonna stop, but not yet.
2: I remember that one because of the
0: corset. There are a couple of them that are considered good. Most people say that the Jungle Book one's good and the 2015 Cinderella is also seen as one of the better ones. Uh, I remember that the, the PBD Essex Museum had an exhibit about the history of shoes, and they had the slippers from the 2015 Cinderella there for some reason.
2: I saw that exhibit three times. It was awesome.
0: What I found interesting is that the Cinderella shoes were also close to, like, the sex shoes.
2: Ryan, all shoes are sex shoes.
0: But these ones were specifically meant for sex. They're like, there's a pair of shoes that was impossible for you to actually stand in, so you could only wear them if you were on your knees.
2: Are those the lobster-looking ones? Yeah, those yeah. ones,
0: yeah. So anyways,
2: glass <laughs> so slippers and <Cinderella>. that. It's <laughs> more like the goth Cinderella story.
0: All right, and uh, that brings us to themes. Uh, the first one I wrote down was, is Cinderella actually a damsel in distress?
2: I mean, she was raising up an army of loyal and unexpected followers.
1: I see her as an exploited member of the working class. Yeah, considering that she has a rat army, I'm not
0: entirely convinced that Cinderella isn't a Dracula.
1: (laughs) Also, think about where that
2: cage was, right? Nobody else in that house was looking for those mice but her.
1: Well, she's the servant. Why would anyone else have to check the rat traps? She was
2: building that army, Sylvan. She was building that army. Yeah, She was lonely
1: and she made pets with the vermin
0: A common, like, buzzfeed in 2012 criticism of Disney princesses in general And Cinderella, since she's the archetypical Disney princess Is that Cinderella is very passive And all these people are just walking all over her And she needs to be rescued But she commanded her rat army to save her from that attic I don't think that's an entirely fair take. And I think that she's actually pretty assertive by the standards of the time, especially when contrasted against Snow White. And as the narrator, Cruella DeVille, in the very beginning, and if you can't trust Cruella with DeVille's word, who's can you? Cinderella's principal virtue is that even though that she's constantly beset by arbitrary hardships and humiliations and pains that she did not earn, she refuses to allow her crappy family to spoil her kindness. And that is what saves her in the end. Because she is nice to her rat army.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it also gets her the fairy godmother and the fairy godmother's help. But yeah, I, th- I think that's what struck me about my recent rewatching of this and made it more relatable, you know, as a uh, millennial who has suffered through some pretty shitty public service jobs that have not paid off and have had to, like, grin and bear it when I'm in unjust circumstances and put on that, that retail mask. is very relatable, and there is an escapist fantasy about, you know, life becoming fair and you're hard work earning you something
0: we did talk about that in the ever after episode as well
1: and um you know cinderella isn't passively waiting for the prince to save her she just wanted to be able to go to the ball because she was supposed to be allowed to there was a royal decree it was unfair that her family was keeping her from it she wanted to to dance and dress up pretty just like everyone else and then she happened to meet the prince
0: and after she got out of the ball, she was mostly expressing gratitude for it. She wasn't like, oh, this thing went pear-shaped and the pumpkin was destroyed. And that bit where the um dire race from Lord of the Rings just stomped that pumpkin—that was a devastating scene. I thought that was supposed to be heartbreaking, but Cinderella's like, oh well, we had a few laughs.
2: I mean, it's a pumpkin; it's not gonna keep. I and
0: mean, just the way that was animated, like the sparkles dying after the pumpkin gets stomped—that shit's hardcore.
1: Yeah, she knew it was very temporary. She wasn't overreaching.
0: The next thing I wrote down was the relationship between Cinderella and Prince Charming, who's named that retroactively because this guy doesn't even get a damn name. <laughs> it's essentially Marvin the Martian or Beaky Buzzard. And are like, oh shit, we gotta call this guy something now.
1: <laughs> Mr. Sneers a lot.
0: <laughs> Walt kind of nuked Charming as a
1: character, as I've already covered.
0: He's a bit of a cipher here. Like, all the people who think Prince Eric is kind of a nothing burger, Eric gets a lot more to do in Little Mermaid than Prince Charming does here.
1: Hell yeah, Eric
2: has a lot of personality. And hair. He does a lot with his hair in that movie. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, Prince Charming has nice hair, too, I guess.
1: He's got nice eye rolls. (laughs) He has flat, unmoving hair. He's like a Ken doll.
0: That brings me to another like circa 2012 BuzzFeed listicle complaining about Disney tropes. The idea that was also lampshaded and frozen of the princess meeting the prince and they instantly fall in love and get married the next day. The whole line about you can't just marry somebody you just met. I don't think that actually tracks with most Disney movies, including this one. Because, like, Cinderella and Prince Charming are um, instantly infatuated with each other. But after the slipper goes on, there's a sort of a time jump and then they get married. There's a very good chance that they got to know each other a little bit before, you know, they went along with
1: it. Oh. And hopefully they both found out that they can talk to animals. I totally disagree. I
2: 100% think that they just, like, got back to the palace and that wedding was waiting for them. And he was just like, anyway, 100 Honeymoon suite, let's go kids.
0: No, no, no. Cinderella needed at least enough time to create wedding appropriate uniform for her rat army. <laughs> And also, the rat army was at the wedding and everyone was cool with it. So, the rat army was introduced to Prince Charming. He's like, Oh, you talk to animals too? Here's my cool dear friend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the king was probably uh, afraid of spooking her again. So, there might have been a wedding waiting for them, but he might have listened when she was like, Hold up, my mice need their clothes. <laughs>
0: Alright, at this point I've had canon that Cinderella is a Dracula, so that's part of it too.
1: <laughs> and of course we have to torture and kill the stepmother and stepsisters off screen. I mean, again,
2: rat army. You can literally just, the birds, just birds at them. <laughs>
0: okay you know what i'm gonna be less of a stinker in that regard i think lady tremaine and the stepsisters are in the wedding party being mad and cinderella's just like making them wear ugly dresses and that's as
1: far as it goes now that part where where she's just like smiling off into space while they're throwing all their laundry on her arms that is her picturing what she's gonna do to them once she's queen that's my head <laughs> cannon right there
2: she, she has them working in the laundry I they going to get pushed into the dye? No,
1: I think we're going Charles Perrault here. I think they're having to dance on hot coals and iron shoes until they drop dead.
2: I always thought that was Snow White. I thought that went backwards. Is that Snow White? I thought it was Cinderella. I think that they replaced the hot coals and Snow White with a boulder.
0: You know what? I will look it up and then say which is the right one in the in an addendum. Anyways, <laughs> uh, that's everything that I wrote down for Cinderella. Is there anything that either of you would like to add before we close things
1: out? I think I got my talking points in already. I really enjoyed um, when
2: we were chatting while you were getting this all set up, you comparing it with the Alice in Wonderland and talking about the animators together
0: oh yes because they were being made simultaneously and they shared several voice actors and I mentioned Mary Blair I mean I mentioned Mary Blair's abstracted plants in um, the, the ball dancing scene and of course in Alice in Wonderland is jacked up to 11 that being said if you google Mary Blair's concept art and I strongly recommend that you do there is a streak of modernism that does get sanded down when it's in the final film you only see bits and pieces of it and like those previous films I mentioned in the in also in The Three arrows, Really interesting stuff. It makes you wonder of like all of the other stuff that's trapped in the Disney vault that nobody is allowed to look at. Not just the porn, but you know, the other stuff.
2: <laughs> how long do you think it's going to be before that gets released for content? Like how, how far do they have to scrape for that?
0: I'm not sure if it ever will, considering, you know, how long it's taken like Steamboat Willy to enter public domain. Hmm. Anyways. Thanks for listening to this one, everybody, and join us again next time. Hi, this is Ryan from the future with the promised addendum. I'm sure some of the more folkloric inclined listeners have already been screaming at us about this, but yes, in the Perot version of Cinderella, a title character, very characteristically, in my opinion, forgives the stepsisters and the stepmother, and even marries off the stepsisters to uh, court nobles. The more brutal fates for the step family are in other versions, uh, notably the Grimm Brothers version, in which the stepsisters are blinded by doves. I couldn't find the hot one, but I've heard about it before. It, It exists in some idiom. Feel free to yell about it in the comment section.